Welcome to Healthcare IT Today. I'm John Lynn, together with my colleague and friend, Colin Hum. The world of technology and healthcare are ever-changing in new and novel ways, and that's why we love this stuff. So join us as we discuss the latest healthcare and health IT news meshed together in new ways, which help generate ideas and new perspectives. Plus, we'll have a little fun along the way. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the permanent changes to healthcare because of COVID-19, which I don't know if there's anything fun about COVID-19, but at least we're here doing the best we can to help. So, Also, today's episode is sponsored by HP, the leader in the world's most secure and manageable PCs. Learn more about HP's Healthcare Edition products at hp.com slash go slash healthcare slash US. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hum. Plus, check out our 13 years of health IT blog content at healthcareittoday.com. Are you doing all right, Colin, amidst the uh, COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, you know, by the time this episode airs, I really sincerely hope I'm not on day 30 of self-isolation or stay-at-home warnings, but we very well may be. So it's uh, pretty nutty out there, but it's doing well. You know, thankfully, everyone's healthy, nothing, no, you know, nothing uh, more than just inconvenienced. Uh, which I think in, in, is is doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reality is we're all going to be impacted for months and even years after this is the impact. So uh, that's why it's fun. Let's do a prediction uh, of what COVID-19 is going to, how it's going to impact healthcare. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's really the heart of the first questions, right? Or the, the topic of today is, you know, what has changed because of COVID-19 and, and is that change permanent? We were talking before the show started about one of the things that you're pretty uh, adamant on, which is, of course, the uh, the HIPAA changes and the rollback that has happened. Uh, I don't know. You want to maybe explain that, John, and then why you think it actually won't be permanent? Oh, you let him in on my secret. But no, I, I think it was wise of OCR to do what they call an enforcement discretion, which basically just says, I'm not going to come after you for HIPAA violations during this time period. And they were actually pretty specific with it and said it has to be telehealth related. It's not a HIPAA exemption from everything. Uh, It's just for telehealth, telemedicine. And they made it pretty clear that there were certain things that were okay. For example, FaceTime and Skype, which is encrypted and it is point to point with a user authenticated uh, sort of you know connection between two people, that was part of their enforcement discretion and it was gonna be allowed as part of it and you they won't come after you with HIPAA penalties and HIPAA violations and other sorts of, sorts of penalties for an organization. They did also make it clear that that doesn't apply to like YouTube Live or Facebook Live or TikTok or any of those public facing platforms that don't require authentication, don't really use uh, even security or encryption because it's meant to be public. So, you know, that's the change. And it's a good change because it also applied to uh, secure text messages through WhatsApp and other, you know, iMessage and other things like that, where it's like, okay, now a doctor can communicate with another doctor and not have to worry about uh, that communication 
somehow violating HIPAA. So I, I think it's a good change for now so that we can facilitate the needs of communication, uh, especially as we're all, you know, hold up in various houses and other places. So I, I think that's good, but I don't think it's permanent. I think that they'll roll it back. And the reason I think they'll roll it back is there are HIPAA compliant solutions that are available that people could use. And I think the only reason they offered enforcement discretion is they didn't want to force people to have to implement those right away. But in the future, I think they'll say, yeah, well, now you have time, so implement it the right way. Interesting. Um, I'm kind of hoping it's permanent, but I can see your point. I just think that those other tools, the FaceTimes and, the, and those other ones, but they're so quick to implement and they achieve the goal of what most people want, which is, look, if I need to just check in with a patient to get their temperature or just check in with them for five minutes, it's the it's a really easy tool. They have it. I have it on my phone. It works. Um, I think some of the challenges that we're seeing of some of the other um, full on uh, telemedicine and telehealth uh, applications is, of course, it's not as ubiquitous. It's not so universally known how to use them. They're a bit clunky. So if anything, I think they've let the genie out of the bottle in the sense of, wow, like these tools are so much easier to use. Why don't we just use this one rather than having to go through these other products? Not to say those other products are all bad. I'm sure there's some good, good easy to use ones, but you know, they, this was implemented in a matter of hours, not days and weeks, which makes you kind of scratch your head and go, what is it about those other ones that make it so complicated? Um, and is that, is, are they are they meeting really matching a need that's much greater? So anyway, I'm hoping it's permanent, but I agree with you, it's probably not because I think the the risk of having the data exposed is too high, and that's something they will have to roll back. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if it was permanent, and it, because they are so easy, and it's a it's a really good question about why aren't the others easier? But I think the it gets really tricky when you start thinking of things like e-discovery. And why wasn't this documented in the EHR? And what's the legal health record? Is it the text message that you sent through iMessage? And if that's true, then maybe I need to look through all your iMessages. And then it opens up all sorts of new privacy things. So yeah, I mean, I just don't think it will continue. What I think will continue though, is that organizations want to connect with you digitally and patients are going to say hey you did it during the crisis why aren't you doing it now and so i think organizations are going to have to find a telemedicine solution that is hipaa compliant that provides that same functionality that they may have been doing over skype or some other tool but that is is hipaa compliant in fact skype offers a hipaa compliant version as well but uh you know like so i think they will do it and luckily that was one of the other big changes that i i actually think will be permanent and that is the reimbursement of telehealth and so th that is a big change that has happened because of covid 19 and in short order. I mean, I know people who've been working on it for a dozen years and trying to get telehealth reimbursed. It's still not fully reimbursed the same way an in-person office visit is, but at least they're paying for it and we can address the payment disparity as well. And I think that will be permanent and that will be a change that will be a good one for healthcare. No, I agree with you on that one. I, I like the fact that they've increased the, the the billing possibilities that it can be done through telehealth. I think that's needed. I think the whole industry obviously is going to get a, boot, a boost because of all of this. And we you know we talked about it in our last episode. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm hoping this one is permanent. Um, I think it will be because there's no point in rolling it back. It's not like it's hurting anything. 
if anything, you know, if some uh, organizations choose not to use telehealth, they just won't use those codes, right? But they're there and the billing is there. I don't think it's something they're going to roll back just because the crisis is over. So I think those are definitely going to be things that um, are going to be with us for for going forward, which is which is fantastic. Well, and it'll need some evolution as well. Because I mean, they rolled it out really quick, and you know, they I, it was good. I mean, credit them; they they should roll it out quick. But the problem is, there's a lot of nuance there that wasn't considered, and I think we're going to see it even more so when it comes to asynchronous telehealth, and how do we reimburse for asynchronous telehealth, which is a text message between your doctor, or a portal message between your doctor, or some sort of you know communication by text. That is work for the doctor, but our system doesn't have a good way to pay for that right now. We, we've started to see some remote monitoring and, and kind of asynchronous telehealth communication reimbursement. So they've waded into those waters, but it, you know, it's not fully developed. And if we expect doctors to text message with us and provide care that way, then we're going to need to figure out a way to reimburse for it. I think many organizations would say value-based care is the right model because then the doctor's like, okay, I'll just text all I need to, right? And, <laughs> and the patients will be happy to text with them because they're like, I need to ensure that they're healthy. Uh, you know, it turns out we've learned over time that patients, most patients, aren't going to bug the doctor if they don't have to. In fact, most of us don't want to text our doctor because if we text the doctor, we're admitting that we have some problems and need some help. Uh, and so it doesn't get abused the way some people thought it might, or the people that do abuse it are probably abusing you other ways by calling in, by showing up at your office, all of those other things. So, you know, but even that with that said, we still need to pay these providers, these clinicians who are answering the asynchronous telehealth. And right now the system doesn't do a good job of that. The one thing I will say that is sort of interesting uh, where it, I don't know how you address it is, do you get to bill for an AI chatbot conversation, mm. right? Like you think about that and you go, well, this thing is, you know, some of these AI chatbots that have come through, come about because of COVID-19 are helping you triage to determine whether or not you should go to the ER or just stay at home, right? To me, that is a form of telehealth, but not being done by an actual clinician. It's done by an AI. So the Obviously, it's. I think it would be horrible to charge for that, but it is providing a valuable service. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting question. They're going to we're going to have to wrestle with because a lot of hospitals and other organizations have implemented these chatbots just to reduce the volumes on their on their call centers and on their texting capabilities, and it is providing a valuable service. So it's going to be interesting to see whether that gets any funding or any love. Um, and uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going to be. It's going to be fun to track that one. Well, it's ironic, too, because many of these organizations didn't implement those chatbots because it was killing their bottom line. And so, like, it's fascinating that now they have implemented them because they knew they needed to per the demand. And so, yeah, how are they going to recover from that and the damages? Yeah, that, that will be an interesting story to watch. You know, there was yeah. another change as well where doctors are now under Medicare allowed to practice across state lines, which I, there has to be a whole history here that I don't fully understand with uh, state medical uh, licensure and that doctors have to be licensed within each state. And Medicare said, okay, we're allowing you to practice across state lines 
it, you know, assuming you have a medical license in another state that is comparable, uh, you know, you can practice within your scope. And uh, but what's interesting is it was misread by a lot of people because even though Medicare said that it wasn't a blanket, hey, we have power, you can just go ahead and do this. Every state has to allow it as well, and only a certain number of states have. I hope this becomes a reality and it becomes a federal law that just says, hey, state boards, you, you need to trust each other, basically. <laughs> um, it was disgusting what a lot of tele telehealth and telemedicine companies were having to do with their providers, paying essentially useless money for all of these doctors to be licensed in 50 states. And, you know, I would love to see that go away. Yeah, it, it is. That is one of the changes that I hope gets at least, if not made permanent, at least addressed after this crisis is over, because it doesn't make any sense to any of us looking at a crisis like this going, why can't a doctor from the state next door who isn't suffering as badly come over and help? Why can't a nurse who's in a state that can only practice in a certain state can't come over and, you know, like, all, like you know, why can't a clinician do that? It, it is it is pretty, uh, pretty unbelievable. Um, yeah, if it was Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's a whole other that's a whole other one that we're struggling with up here. But, uh, you know, because like, you think about what's happened, right? Like they've basically, um, you know, they've now increased the pool, if you will, of available doctors by making it potentially possible for someone from one state to go to an, work in another, uh, even remotely. Uh, if you do, they just man the telehealth um, or the, the phone lines, that's even a help, right? And now they've even asked, um, you know, we, we know that New York State and other states have asked anybody who's recently retired, uh, you know, and then they, they, then they got rid of the word recently and just said anyone who's retired who's a former, uh, you know, physician or nurse, please come back and you're in, right? We, we need your help. Uh, you know, the one step that they haven't taken yet, but I hope they do, is the, the one you just talked about, the international border. Like, why is it that we have Uber, you know, drivers who have medical degrees you know, sitting on the sidelines when they potentially could be helping if they were trained in the UK or they're trained in Singapore or they're trained in other other countries. You have potentially another resource that you can draw on. Uh, but just because they were trained and are waiting for some tasks or have to do five years of this or that here, you're not going to use them. But to me, in a crisis situation, it doesn't make sense why that would still be there. Um, so I'm just hoping that eventually the whole idea of just, you know, if you're a trained medical professional, the barrier for you to practice should be lower. I mean, I think not in terms of your skill level, I'm just saying the licensing of it should be a lot less complicated. Yeah, and I think you need to be more specific when you go international uh, because not all medical training is equal across the world. Uh, but within the U.S., you know, even within the U.S., it's not equal, but it's pretty close, right, because of the standards that are required. And I'm sure there's other countries that have essentially adopted what we're doing here in the U.S., and it's an equivalent degree. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, it was interesting. I saw one story of a doctor who was retired and trying to go back, and he had, of course, 20 pages of paperwork to get re-licensed, or I forget the exact terminology, to get to to be allowed privileges at the hospital again. I'm like, really? At this time, you have to go fill out 20 pages of of information you probably haven't looked at in 40 or 50 years. Like, <laughs> it's unfortunate, but I mean, I, I understand where they're coming from because those laws haven't been loosened but it's a little sad unfortunately 
You know, there was one other change that will be interesting, and that's the MIPS one. So MIPS was essentially delayed reporting for one more month. And then they said, we'll tell you what we're going to do for 2020 reporting later. Uh, I think that change is permanent. Uh, and I think we're going to see something really uh, generous as far as delays on 2020 reporting as well. Oh, yeah. And there was one other thing is if you don't report your MIPS 2019 data, you essentially get the automatic exemption and no penalties. And I think we'll see more of that. And I think it's the right thing to do. No one should be thinking about MIPS right now if they're busy dealing with uh, COVID-19. That is definitely so true. Hey, listen, if you're tuning in just now, you are listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lynn and Colin Hunt. And today's episode is sponsored by HP, the leader in the world's most secure and manageable PCs. Learn more about HP's Healthcare Edition products at hp.com slash go slash healthcare slash US. And be sure to follow the company on Twitter at HP. The best Twitter account you can get at HP, right? That's a, just, that's a simple as it comes. That's it. That is. <laughs> I'm jealous. That is. So let's, let's get to our second topic, John, in the time we have left. And that is, you know, given the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, what has, it, well, I think it's laid bare some of the gaps that we have in healthcare. And I think it's caused some permanent damage uh, to the healthcare system. And so let's spend some time talking about that. What was the first one that you, you noticed, John? Yeah, I mean, the first one for me was the lack of surveillance data that should be able to be provided from the EHR vendors, why the Epics and Cerners of the world didn't hop on this and make something available that says, hey, here's all the data from all of our EHR software that says how many COVID-19 cases came in, how many people came reporting with fevers, et cetera. Why don't we have that data? I mean, healthcare interoperability has always been a problem, but guess what? Within epic they should be able to do this and it's a, you know, even Cerner, not to call it just epic but any of the ehr vendors should be able to do it and i imagine a few of them could but they just don't have the same footprint of epic and Cerner. so it's unfortunate that that hasn't happened and i think that's a huge gap uh, i think arian malik described it well in a tweet he said i'm never going to complain about a population health interoperability part piece of mips from now on or something like that i was like yeah <laughs> We're, we're facing it and we wish it were there. Yeah, one of the, that's definitely one of the areas that I, I think was exposed. The other one for me that was exposed was, um, you know, I think we, we all like the thought of everyone being equal and, and you know, first come, first serve kind of uh, mentality. But in a crisis situation like this, and what I'm referring to specifically is about the COVID tests and not about getting it, but actually results from it. And mm. to me, uh, you know, one of the things that we should be doing is prioritize whose results come back first uh, from having a test. And to me, what I'm talking about is really around um, healthcare workers. Those tests for the healthcare workers should be prioritized and done first because we need them to get back because if they're negative, they should be put right back and, you know, they need to go back to what they were doing to taking care of patients. But we're hearing stories now of some people having to wait two or three days to get their results in the U.S., but in Canada, it's now up to about six or seven days uh, to get results back. And to me, to have someone out of circulation for six to seven days, especially a healthcare worker or a first responder, for that long is ridiculous, right? So right. I think in one of the one of the gaps that has been exposed to me is we need to prioritize the tests. 
um, not based on anything other than are you part of the healthcare organization? Because if you are, you should get test. Like your test should be done first, and then you get right back into it. Because if you're positive or negative, that has implications. Um, so uh, to me, that's a big gap, and I don't know how to fix it. I just uh, I just look at it and go, I can't. There's about you know hundreds of nurses that are right now in isolation because they don't know whether they have COVID or not. Yeah, well, we shouldn't prioritize NBA players and senators over nurses and doctors. That's that that's something we've definitely learned. You know, I think uh, Farzad Mustashari and, and some of the other people, I think Andy Schlavid, uh, some of their stuff has pointed out that even the test result itself without more context is is not that valuable. So number of positives is great. But how much better would it be if we had number of positives and their age and, the, you know, what conditions they came in with and what comorbidities they had before and what, you know, like, so there's all of this other data we need. And they argue that the real problem was uh, we didn't ask the right questions up front. And so we're not getting the data that we need now to be able to answer those questions. And it, it, I, I love that idea. And I think that's a, in a gap that we've learned is we need to know what questions we need answered so that we can ensure that the data that's coming back from these tests is the data we need to be able to make educated decisions. Because if we found out that it was always people over 65 that were testing positive, and they all had cancer or whatever it might be, you know, in the next epidemic, then that would help us understand, oh, no, we don't need to shut everyone down. We just need to shut these few people down or, or whatever it might be. So I think that was another gap is designing what data was needed and will be needed to help us make better decisions. That, that's a huge gap. Yeah. And, you know, just on the on you just mentioned Farzad there, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is a a piece of permanent damage caused by COVID-19 is I think we're going to see a rash of shutdowns of primary care physician practices. I, I think that area, and, and uh, Farzad has really tweeted about this a few times and, and kind of raised the alarm bell to say a lot of these uh, practices were running pretty close to break even already. And now with the shutdown and, you know, them having to maybe go and work at the hospital for a little bit or, you know, just not being able to see patients, uh, you know, uh, because they, they're shut down their office, but they're going to suffer as a business. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of those um, primary care uh, practices that won't reopen uh, after the, this crisis is over, not because they don't want to, but because it just wasn't financially viable for them. The other worry that a lot of people have is they might decide, you know what, I'm better off working at the hospital. <laughs> you know, it just it, right now is obviously crazy hours and, and not a great situation. But you know what, that's a lot easier. I didn't have to worry about financial stuff. I just, you know, I go, I work, I help patients, and I'm done. Um, so there, there's going to be some pretty big fallout and pretty big damage in terms of the primary care layer of healthcare. Uh, I don't think it'll return back to where it was pre-COVID. Yeah, and I'm interested to see if private equity or hospitals and health systems just chomp them up at at pennies on the dollar in order to acquire them. And in some ways, it's good because that will keep some of them open. But I, I think some of the rural ones, they're just going to suffer. I saw someone else uh, mentioned that, yeah, primary care doesn't have 
anyone to cut. It's basically the doctor and the front desk staff, maybe a nurse in many cases. So the, the, there's no areas really to cut. And so it is unfortunate that uh, the, we're going to see a lot of damage. But even the hospitals are suffering as well, since a lot of their money comes from these elective procedures. And that's going to be a problem for them. Yeah, and that's a that's another story that's been bubbling, um, you know, now, and I think it will continue to bubble by the time this airs. And that is just the number of layoffs and uh, financial constraints that hospitals are under because, yeah, they can't, they're not uh, doing the revenue generation type of activities anymore. So we've heard stories about, you know, some administration uh, folks being laid off, and then even some nurses who practice in those specific areas are being uh, furloughed and. It's just, it's a bit crazy to think about that. Like why would healthcare shrink in this time? But there are some organizations who that's all the kind of services that they were providing and that was what generating the revenue. And now that that revenue is not coming in, uh, you know, they're having to turn either to government sources for, for assistance or they're having to shrink, uh, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, and I read an, a, a crazy article talking about the insurance company side of things, and you would think that payers would be suffering as well, covering all these people with COVID-19 uh, and other coverage, but it turns out they're avoiding many procedures that are costly to them, uh, and, and so they're saving money that way. They're not covering COVID-19 the way that they should, and then rumor is that payers are going to start charging more for premiums and premiums, and next year they're going to just basically make up for all their losses this year with higher premiums next year and create a better business. So I'm hoping some people are watching that and we can avoid that because it just says something really awful about our system if payers are not in you know taking some of the brunt of this and covering people the way they should be so uh, yeah that, that's a scary gap as well yeah no that that is and, and you're right i mean there hasn't really the payers have been sort of the silent uh group in all of the covid coverage i mean they're one of the groups that aren't talked about pharma is obviously front and center and with the antivirals and all the potential uh, cures and vaccines that they're working on and trying to help out. Uh, and then of course, healthcare organizations being right in the middle of it. But the one group that has not said very much during all of this is the payers. And uh, obviously I think there's a reason for that. Um, mostly because they probably don't know what the heck's going on and they're probably not covering as much as we think they are. So uh, they probably are smartly remaining silent right now. For their business, it's smart, but it, it really is unfortunate. I mean, we've heard from, you know, our catwalker, we've heard from our bank, we've heard from our pizza place, we've heard from our provider, and we haven't heard a single thing from the payer, and, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, no, it's true. But well, I mean, hopefully, you know, we 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 come out. We're we're hopefully, you know, turning the corner. Uh, hopefully, we are going to come out of this better. Um, and that, you know, one thing I will say uh, for sure is healthcare is once again going to be front and center of uh, all the politics, all the business, uh, you know, all the funding. Uh, there's definitely going to be a lot of money flowing into healthcare. So whenever this ends, there's definitely going to be a lot of opportunity for people on the other side of this. Uh, if we can just get through this really tough time of staying at home and, and keeping others safe by being at home. Yeah, and it's going to force us to rethink a lot of things. And in many ways, that's good because healthcare needed some redesign. I'm not sure this is the method I would have chosen to do it, but uh, it's certainly forcing us out of our shell and forcing us to look at issues within healthcare in a different way and it will bring them to light. And I think when all is said and done, I think we'll be better. Our healthcare system will be better for it 
although there's going to be some damages that are going to last especially individually to organizations and to patients that you know they're going to be lifelong Hey, on that positive note, let's end this episode. So thank you to all of you who tuned in to this episode of Healthcare IT Today. And thank you to HP for sponsoring today's show. You can learn more about HP and their healthcare edition products that were designed by with clinicians in mind to streamline patient care and optimize clinical workflows at hp.com slash go slash healthcare slash US. And to find out more details about our show, check out the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and share your voice and engage with the community at healthcareittoday.com and on Twitter using the hashtag HITSM. I'm Colin Hong along with my friend John Lin. Thanks for listening and have a great week.